Happy Father's Day. Are you ready to hear the word? You're in for a special treat today. Bringing us the word of God is our own Ephraim Garcia. Amen. His wife, Sherry, who is our nursery coordinator, brought a powerful word on Mother's Day. If you missed it, you can catch it online. And uh, she did really well. And Ephraim's going to bring us a word. But first, right now, watch this. Come on, kids. Get dressed for church. I don't want to be late again. Sounds good, Dad. Daddy, I'm going to wear this, okay? That's fine, Juno. Just get dressed. <laughs> kids, are you ready? Heidi, are you ready? Mm. Wait. Did you change? No, Daddy! I can't find my red socks to go with my red dress. Juno, it's fine. Just put your socks on. No! Ooh. All right, Theo, you ready to go? Theo, what are you doing? I should get ready. But, Dad, did you see what my Lionel Polar Express train does? Watch. Yeah, no, that's really cool, buddy. But I need you to get ready so that we're not late, all right? Sounds good, Dad. Get your clothes on. Juno! Why are you naked? Get dressed! Daddy, I can't reach my dress! You were already wearing one! No! I want to wear this one! Okay, fine. Just put this on and get in the car, okay? We're gonna be late. But Daddy, I need breakfast! Wait, you haven't eaten yet? <sighs> Alright, Theo, do you want some oatmeal? Buddy, what are you doing? Dad, you gotta watch this. Watch what this does. Watch! That's cool, buddy, but we're gonna be late. You need to get ready. Okay, Dad. Now! Dad, you make me sad. <sighs> buddy, don't cry. You're fine. Please, just get ready. Oh, the baby. Are you hungry, buddy? Where is your mother? Will you say I'm strong? When I think I'm weak. Babe, are you ready? Oh. oh, yeah, I'm almost ready. I just gotta take a bath. Church starts in 10 minutes. Yeah, it only takes six minutes to get there. We're fine. <sighs> you say I'm love. Guys, why are your shoes not on? I can't find my socks. Ah, there. Dad, I can't find my shoes. <sighs> Here. I can't find my shoes either. All right, as you know, here's your shoes. Now, please get in the car. Guys, where are you? <laughs> no, we are not playing hide-and-go-seek. Where are you? Daddy, over here, Daddy. Guys? <laughs> get out here! Get in the car! Seatbelt. <sighs> Let's get you in the car, buddy. Come on. Leave your seatbelt on. Heidi! Yes, I'm coming. Babe, let's go. We're already late. Babe, I am not coming home to a messy house. Then you should have gotten up earlier. Oh, do you want to go there? Ask me how much sleep I got last night. Ask me. I'm just saying. Seven minutes. That's what my watch said. I've done everything for the kids this morning, and you've been nowhere to be found. First, Theo needed a drink of water, and then Juno had a bad dream, and then Theo went to bed, and then Otto needed to feed. And guess what? After he fed, he pooped, and I had to change that. I get it, okay? Can we please just get in the car? All while you were sound asleep, Mr. Sleepy Face. Okay, fine. What can I help you with? Just look around and pick something up. Fine. 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 Do 
you want to stop for a coffee? Yeah. Baba. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, I grew up with five sisters and three brothers. Um, two of my brothers were half-brothers and older than me, so they were gone from the household most of the time. And I had one younger brother. So I essentially grew up in a household full of girls, five girls, and then there was my younger brother and I. So there was a lot of estrogen in the home. <laughs> Uh, as such, I kind of grew up with a lot of knowledge about things that the typical guy would not know. <laughs> I could tell you the difference between chartreuse and yellow. Uh, I know the difference between velvet and velveteen. Um, the difference between gray, G-R-A-Y, and gray, G-R-E-Y. They are actually two different colors. Um, so when I became a teenager, having five sisters, naturally, I kind of gravitated towards having a lot more female friends. And one of my friends told me, oh, I love you so much. It's just like talking to a, a girl. <laughs> you know, thank God at that time in my life, I was not inundated with a culture that told me, well, I have to be gay then. Right. You know, we can have certain characteristics and traits and certain gifts and talents that God has given us, and that still does not define what we are. It may define who you are as far as what your interests and likes are, but it doesn't define what you are. Anyways, I'm getting off on a bunny trail there. Uh, <laughs> uh, so back to Adam and Eve. Before Adam became a father, he was a husband. Why did God ordain it this way? When you think about the animal kingdom, sure, some of the animals are monogamous and loyal to each other, but for the most part, most beasts make terrible fathers, particularly grizzly bears. They win the award for worst father ever. Uh, in case any of you are wondering about grizzly bears, uh, basically the mother will fight off the father bear and keep her away from her children because he will kill them and possibly eat them. So yes, we definitely don't want to be like grizzly bear fathers. Uh, what is the difference with us being made in the image of God? We are called to emulate God's characteristics and how he relates to us as children in our own homes. The Bible often relates Jesus' relationship to the church as that as a husband and the churches as a bride. Let's delve a little bit deeper in what, into what the Bible says about God's plan for marriage. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, and I know this is a lot of people's favorite verse, <laughs> particularly my wife's. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to or, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing 
of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. We see here that God has ordained the husband as a leader in the household with the command to love and lead in the way Jesus does. Now, Jesus' leadership style is not typical about how you would think about leadership. In Matthew 20, 25 through 28, it says, But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whosoever, excuse me, whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What does this mean? means you can kiss your dreams of having your wife massage your feet while you're watching football goodbye. <laughs> Under God's plan, you are called to demonstrate the love of God, first and foremost to your wife. Jesus' example of washing his disciples' feet means that maybe you're the one giving the foot massage. Jesus' example was looking after his mother and making sure she was taken care of while on the cross. In the midst of his greatest trial that he ever went through, he still made sure to look after his family. How many times have you had a bad day and taken it out on your spouse or your family? The kind of leadership God requires of us is to give ourselves for her. Jesus pouring himself out for the church was a unilateral love. He gave himself for you, whether you accept him or not. Similarly, how we show love to others, but especially to our spouse, is not dependent on how happy we are with them, whether we are angry, irritated, how stupid and irrational they are being, how emotional they are, how obedient they are or not, how much you like their tone of voice, etc. We are called to walk in unilateral, sacrificial love the way Jesus does. This is how you lead in the home. If you are walking in this way, 
most spouses aren't going to have much problem treating you with respect. Most, not all. <sighs> oh, ladies, fret not, I haven't forgotten about you either. <laughs> Remember that whole submit thing? Yeah, no, I thought so. Uh, just to refresh your memory, let's read. First Ephraim 777. Does your man pray every day? Does he read the Bible and seek God? If so, then submit and honor him because he is worthy of your respect. Wait, is that, that's not in your Bible? No? Okay, well, let's, hmm, let me see. Where's the real text here? Oh, there we go. Uh, Ephesians 5, 22, 33. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the church, or the head of the wife, as the, Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be their, their own husbands in everything. And then also, for we are members of his body and his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Uh, when you have a disagreement with your husband, or even when he is just plain wrong, yeah, it happens sometimes. I know it does. It's rare on occasion, but, you know, my wife is very, very, um, no, I'm, actually, she's pretty good at about it. She points it out every time. Um, <laughs> uh, anyways, but, okay, I'm getting, losing my train of thought here. When your husband is being wrong, you know, sometimes we can be a little bit stubborn and big-headed. Maybe we're a little bit slower than you to hear from God, what, what he's saying to us. Um, look at what David did in 1 Samuel 24, 6. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. Now this was in response to encouragement from his men to kill King Saul, who at the time was hunting David to kill him. At this point, David had already been anointed by a God to be the next king of Israel. Still, he recognized the anointing and authority God had placed in the current king, Saul. He understood that by doing such a thing, he would be dividing Israel and instead chose to trust God to bring about his kingship in God's way and in God's timing. Now... Does this mean you let your husband trample you down and abuse you? I know, I'm not going to say some denominations, but uh, I've seen it where there has been this expectation of just un, uh, unquestioning submission. And in that situation, uh, 
trying to be diplomatic in how I phrase it. Okay, you can be married to a selfish jerk, and they can use this verse in the Bible to justify the way that they treat you. Well, there's actually a way in the Bible where you can confront this kind of behavior. Um, in Matthew, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained a brother. Now, this isn't just in response. I mean, a lot of people take this verse and they apply it to, well, someone at church offended me, so I'm going to do this. This is how you deal with conflict every day in every situation in your life. You know, this could be your coworkers. Uh, for those of you in school still, it could be your classmates, your teachers. It can be people under you. It can also be people over you. It's how you deal with conflict. First, you go to that person, and you confront them. You tell them how you feel, why you feel that way. And, you know, if, if they hear and understand you, great. Uh, then, at that point, if you're still not satisfied with the outcome, you can escalate it. Uh, you take two or three witnesses. Uh, that way, it may be established. This is where someone's going to mediate for you. Maybe they're um, being a little bit, uh, maybe they're emotionally involved in something. Maybe it's triggering them. They are being irrational. Uh, normally, they're reasonable, but for whatever reason, they can't see it. Um, you need outside help mediating it. Uh, still, if you refuse to hear them, tell it to the church. Now, this does not mean you go around gossiping to everybody in the church. This is bringing it to the body of Christ, to the elders, to the pastors, someone who both of you are in submission to their authority. Um, typically, that's the point where Pastor Allen, because I know he loves confrontation so much, <laughs> will come to you and be like, hey, I heard you were doing this. Knock it off. And at that point, if they won't listen to God's counsel, uh, you're supposed to treat them like a heathen and a tax collector. <laughs> so how do you treat heathens and tax collectors? You pray for the heathens, and you render what is due to tax collectors. You know, tax collectors, you still owe them the taxes. You don't have to like it but you still give what is due. In like manner, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your husbands, so that even if they refuse to believe the word, they will be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Kind of going on off on a bunny trail here, there's more to it than this. I'm not planning on speaking on marriage in general. This is just, kind of, you know, there are, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated subject. But just as a general rule, this is how you should deal with conflict in your marriage. Obviously, when you have both parents loving and following God, your power and influence in your children's life is multiplied. But even with just one parent demonstrating and living godly principles, it'll have a positive impact. But we, when we, through our selfishness, decide well, she disrespected me, 
so I'm not going to show her love. We are responsible for dividing the house down. Or when we say, and I think I forgot to mention in my notes here, I had scripture about a house being divided, Jesus saying that a house divided against itself will not stand. Uh, So that's what I'm referring to when I'm saying dividing the house down. Um, Or maybe we might say, my man is such a slob. Why should I respect him when all he ever does is play video games? Or watch sports? Or go fishing? Or insert whatever the hobby is here? Even if that's true, because sometimes it is, let's be real, you are both out of alignment with God's will. When you suffer a blowout of one front tire, you can still steer a car. But once both front tires have blown, you have no control over where you end up. So anyways, now that we've established the need for men to rise up and be godly leaders in the home, let's take a look at what that looks like. All right, a leader must lead by example. Titus 2, 7 through 8. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, I kind of lack the seriousness sometimes, and soundness of speech, that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Children learn by example. You can preach the Bible to them all day long, but unless they see to it being demonstrated by actions, it's just a fairy tale. To the child who figures out that mom is the tooth fairy, Santa is just some guy in a fat suit and just learned in biology class that it's impossible for bunnies to lay eggs. It's just more of the same. If your actions show that you don't value kindness and you turn all Karen at the store with the cashier, (laughs) sorry to all the Karens out there, why would you think a few words taught in Sunday school would negate that? So I used to manage a Starbucks cafe inside of Barnes & Noble. We shared bathrooms with the bookstore, and we rotated cleaning duty. During this time, I had a number of employees that I was mentoring mentoring and training into management. Well, one of these days, the customers had a particularly bad accident (laughs) in the restroom. And it was one of my crew members' turn to clean it. After seeing the fiendishly bad state of affairs in the bathroom, I sent my employee back to the cafe, after instructing them to wash their hands, of course, (laughs) and proceeded to clean up the unmentionable in church situation. After a little bit, one of my management trainees came in to check up on me, or maybe to gloat a little, I'm not really sure, (laughs) and they saw me mopping. She asked me why I didn't make someone else clean it up, 
And I told her, I won't ask anyone to do anything that I wouldn't do. And then I said something about how a manager is just a ba basically a glorified janitor anyways. <laughs> well, wouldn't you know it, eventually this girl became the manager of the same store that I had been. And one day, while stopping in for coffee, I saw her mopping the dining room floor. One of her crew members was teasing her about doing the menial work, to which she replied, that's basically what a manager is, a glorified janitor. <laughs> People learn from your example far more than they do from your words. A leader sets aside pride and ego. So having raised four kids, I think I can safely say that they will test your patience. They will challenge you and at times exasperate you. One of the important things to remember though, is this not about me, it's about them. I'm the adult, I'm the one that's supposed to be setting the example. When you discipline your kids, it should be about helping them grow and learn. Yes, there are painful consequences for wrong actions, but if it's not helping them to learn, it's just pain. In Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, the Bible says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy a long life on the earth. Now, I read that off the screen, but I probably could have quoted that from memory because... I'm pretty sure my parents read this Bible verse to me every day for like the first 18 years of my life or so. <laughs> As a parent, a lot of times that's our favorite verse in the Bible. Uh, we tend to skip this next verse, though, which is, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. There are times when we do need to discipline and bring correction to our kids. But look at what the end game is. It's to bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. That's the whole purpose. Sometimes we take things personal when our kids disobey, or they're disrespectful, or they do something that upsets us. Suddenly, it's not about teaching them wisdom and obedience to God but it's about satisfying our own wounded pride and punishing them for their transgressions. A good barometer for that is your anger level. If your discipline is more severe just because you're angry, that is your flesh speaking. Zechariah 7.9 says, This is what the Lord Almighty said, Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. So what does true justice look like? Well, maybe you have a no playing ball in the house rule. Maybe your rowdy brood decided to ignore said rule and end up knocking your 100,000 piece Lego Millennium Falcon from its place on the display <laughs> shelf to the floor, shattering it into 100,000 pieces. Of course you're mad. If they had listened to you, none of this would have ever happened. But in that moment there, what attributes do you think God 
what attributes of God do you think you have the best opportunity to teach them through your example? Maybe they already feel terrible and are expecting the harsh punishment that they know they deserve. Maybe that's the perfect time to show mercy. Maybe they have no remorse and don't care. Perhaps stronger discipline is needed. Either could be appropriate. But my point is, anger should not factor into the equation. Leaders seek justice. Psalm 89:14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. The throne here represents his rule, his leadership. Back in biblical days, there was no separation of powers the way that there is in our American government. The king had all the power, executive, legislative, and judicial. judicial. Excuse me. Judicial. <laughs> there were no checks and balances. If the judge got it wrong, you had no appeal. We see in the book of Kings how the weight of this responsibility weighed heavily on young King Solomon. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he is faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child, figuratively speaking, not literally speaking, and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant here is among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in, in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as your father David did, I will give you a long life. God was so pleased with his desire to rule justly that he blessed him not only with wisdom, but with all the things that he didn't ask for. In our roles as fathers, or any leadership position actually, it can sometimes be tedious to be just. It's easy to enjoy the benefits of our station, 
without bothering to do right by those to look, who look to us for judgment. As a parent, it's easier to yell at both of your kids, shut up, I'm watching TV, than it is when they're arguing with each other than to take the time to arbitrate and listen to a disagreement. I've worked in places where rather than deal with an issue or problem employee, they just call a staff meeting and discuss the issue in vague and broad terms that usually go right over the offender's head. Aside from wasting everybody's time, those types of meetings bore no fruit. In modern-day society, it's been documented that judges in traffic court are more lenient towards defendants on their docket at the start of the day, with harsher penalties and fines imposed near the end of the day. So if you're ever having to appear in court, make sure you're on the front of the list. <laughs> it's just human nature to become tired and lazy and perhaps a little jaded in our administration of justice. We, however, are not called to walk after the flesh, but after the Spirit of God. Now, caveat here, life is not fair. And I try and teach my kids not to expect that it will be. But as far as our responsibility, personally, it is our responsibility to do what we can in treating others with all fairness and justice. Sometimes... <laughs> as a parent, it's easy to say, life's not fair, just get over it. And that's not how we're called to govern. Yes, that is a fact of life. But it is our duty to do what we can to govern with justice. Leaders train and teach others. Proverbs 4, 4 through 5. Hear, my son, O oh my sons, or hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive, that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts, do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, that means young, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live, get wisdom, get insight, do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Our job as fathers and leaders is equipping and training the next generation in all things, but particularly in the things of God. As a culture, we have sort of gotten away from the idea that we are the ones who teach our children. We've gone from the idyllic image of Pops and his sons plowing the field together walking and talking, sharing life lessons and wisdom learned, to that of sending off our kids to the education institution while we head off to business to do earning a living. While I'm not against having schools and education, 
that does not negate the need for us to be the primary influence in our children's life. Nor does it relieve us of our responsibility. Nor does the church body take our place in teaching spiritual principles. As great as Katie's and Pilgrim's lessons may be, your living example and instruction in God's word is what will have the greatest impact. And in all honesty, it doesn't have to be a big deal either. Sometimes it just looks like spending time and having conversations, listening and being available, allowing for questions and having discussions. I think, for myself at least, uh, it's always a uncomfortable thing when I come to my kids and I want to have a conversation and it's like, here's what the Word of God says, this is the lesson. It's, and in my life, the conversations that I had with my parents, the ones that came about organically, where it's like, hey, you know, my dad would tell me something like, oh, when I was younger, I did this, and I did this, and this happened, and, and teach me a life lesson there. Or conversations where my, with my mother where she would be talking about a scripture verse and just be like, oh, hey, you can apply this to your life in this way. It's like, cool. I think sometimes we're intimidated maybe with our lack of biblical knowledge or uh, the need to feel like we know everything, that we don't engage in conversations with our kids because, because <laughs> uh, like, <laughs> we don't want to look stupid. <laughs> yeah. So, but just being available to talk and being approachable. At work, they call this an open door policy. Now, what if we were to prioritize giving our children a greater level of attention and access to that us than the people who are literally just there until they can find a better paycheck? On a more personal note, let's normalize talking about sex, marriage, and purity from an earlier age. Too often we try to shelter our kids from these discussions, yet they are being assaulted on all sides with worldviews that are in opposition to what the Bible has to say. This world is changing so quickly, it's important that we as parents are proactive in teaching our children. Back when I was a kid, my family was on the cutting edge of technology. We had the very first Macintosh, we had the internet before the World Wide Web protocol was a thing. Being as it was new technology, my parents had no idea that it was having an internet-capable computer in a teenager's bedroom was a bad idea. <laughs> Parental controls and filters had not been invented yet. But chat rooms and pornography-filled forums had. By the time they got around having the sexual purity talk with me, there was little to explain that I hadn't already been exposed to. I think it's time we stop sheltering our children and start preparing them. A sheltered mindset says, it's raining, I'm going to stay inside. A prepared mindset is, it's raining, I better bring my umbrella. <laughs> <laughs> 
A prepared person knows to keep their shield of faith handy because they know fiery darts could be headed their way. A sheltered person doesn't know what hit them the first time they step out. God's purpose for you is bigger than your own life. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in all the families of the earth, shall, and through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When Abraham called God and made his covenant with him, it was not just for Abraham's sake. It was through, all, through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This calling was through multiple generations. Abraham never lived to see the fulfillment of the promise in full. He only saw the beginning. Then the torch was passed to Isaac and then to Israel. When the Bible talks about the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, that is showing the call and the purpose that God had for their lives being transferred from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. With each new generation, God's plan has always been to build upon the legacy of the previous generation. When King David sought to build a temple for the Lord, God instead charged his son with doing this. David didn't just sit around and wait, though. He stockpiled all the resources and materials Solomon would need and set him up for fulfilling the charge that God had given him. I think we as Americans, sometimes we've become so fiercely independent from each other that the family unit barely survives the occasional holiday get-together, much less working together for a common goal. Contrast that with our early American forefathers, the pilgrims, who came here to build a settlement where they could worship God freely. While they were being persecuted for their beliefs in England, they fled to the Netherlands, and there they were relatively comfortable and prosperous. What actually finally prompted them to leave was the fact that their children started assimilating to Catholicism. While strong in their own convictions, they cared more about their future generations and were willing to endure hardship to build a society based on Christian principles. Some of us have a hard time just being patient with what God gives us in this lifetime. Hebrews 12:1 says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Once you get the idea that this is a relay race, your perspective changes. You're not alone in this. And lastly, uh, my last and final point is lead through love.
I touched on this briefly when we discussed the husband's role in marriage, but I would be remiss if I didn't reiterate it again. John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Also, 1 John 4 through 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In today's culture, we have a pretty messed up understanding of what love is. We call fornicating making love. We talk about falling in love like it's a terminal disease that we have no say in. (laughs) Side note, why do we say we've fallen out of love if it's something we fall into? Wouldn't that mean that we chose to climb back out of love? Oftentimes in divorce, we reserve our deepest deepest loathing for someone who at one time we claimed to love. None of that is love. Maybe we should bring back the word fond into common usage. I'm fond of obscure words. I'm fond of pizza. I'm fond of ice cream. I am even fond of my wife. Most of the time. It is important that we base our understanding of love off of what God says. He is love after all, not the world's view. Here in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul devotes a whole chapter to this defining characteristic of God and his people. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or clanging cymbal or clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, it is not puffed up, it does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail, whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Now, this next verse, I have no idea what it means, so you can ask Pastor Alan after the service. Uh, For now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know just as also am known. 
And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. In our Christian walk, we like to speak what I call Christianese and say all the nice, lovey buzzwords. Walk in love, show love, etc. That's all fine and good, but love is not an act. I think sometimes we get our motives crossed because we are trying to be loving because we want to be a good witness to people so that they know we are his disciples. That's all fine and dandy, but what is your motivation when you're at home with your family? It's not like you can sustain a loving act for long when you're living life together and they, see, they get to see what you're like when you're suddenly unemployed and feeling sorry for yourself. Or Aunt Flo decides to visit your spouse and suddenly everything you do is wrong. <laughs> Love is a defining trait of God. When we abide in him, he abides in us. When we are doing this, we don't show love. We live it. We are it. In my past, there are times I've failed to show God's love to my wife and kids because I was trying out of my own strength. When you are abiding in the presence of God, reading his word and praying in the spirit, you are connecting to love itself. This empowers you to be love. The kind of love that puts others first. The kind of love that keeps no record of wrong. The kind of love that is kind. This is how you are known as his disciples. This is how you make disciples. And this is how you lead in the home.